Welcome to this episode of Behind the Price. Um, I'm really sorry for making you guys wait so long. Uh, it's been about probably a month or so since I put out the last episode of The Price of Life. Um, but uh, to be honest, my uh, health has taken an unfortunate downturn for the moment. And, um, and also I was lazy. But uh, okay, so let's, let's get into it real quick. Let me pray us in. Uh, God, thank you so much for today. Um, thank you so much, Lord, for the minds that you've given us. Um, you didn't build us to just be simple creatures that can't understand you or understand the world that, um, that you've built, the universe that you've created, um, who you are on a deep level. But Lord, you, you created us with a mind um, that is capable of deep understanding of, uh, of everything around us, of who we are as people, um, as who you are, as God. And, um, and you've given us uh, words to read um, from your mouth that uh, speak to, to us truth. And uh, so I pray, Lord, as we look into these passages further, as we dig further into this Matthew 7 passage and a couple of other passages um, in Matthew as well, that uh, you would help us to understand what, uh, what the truth is, um, and not just to know it, you know, as kind of trivial knowledge that we can, you know, show off somewhere in some random conversation, but knowledge that lives deep in our heart and changes the way that we live and uh, gives us life and hope and purpose. Um, so uh, I thank you, Lord, for all those things, and I pray that you would uh, help us today. Amen. Uh, so my setup is going to sound maybe a little bit different than usual because, uh, as I said, my health has taken a bit of a downturn. I'm awake. It's now it's four in the morning. And so I've pulled out some simple microphone and equipment to record things. So I apologize if it's a little bit less quality than you're used to, but hopefully everything will still be smooth and understandable. Um, I want to get right back into the theological discussion for a moment. Let's talk about workers of lawlessness. Now, in the Price of Life episode, I mentioned that there's a phrase in our Matthew 7 passage where Jesus describes these people who cry to him, Lord, Lord, as workers of lawlessness. And uh, I mentioned there that it's a, it's a bit of a weird phrase because it doesn't appear anywhere else in uh, the New Testament as far as I could uh, tell, but it appears a number of times in the Old Testament and specifically only in the book of Psalms. Um, if we look, there's a, a translation of the Old Testament Hebrew and Aramaic into the language of Greek, which was done sometime around 400 BC um, by a number of Jewish scholars. They translated everything into Greek. And Greek is helpful because the Greek language is actually one of the, the Greek language of the ancient times, we, the, the Koine Greek that we read in the Bible, the New Testament, is incredibly specific and um, is very helpful for understanding the intricacies and nuance of certain uh, words and phrases. Uh, so whenever we look in the Psalms, uh, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the book of Psalms, we see that uh, this term workers of lawlessness appears a number of times. I don't have the number in front of me. I think it's somewhere around 30, 32 times. And um, I'll be honest, I thought by the time I recorded this behind the price that I'd have more insight into what this phrase signifies, but at the moment I don't. Um, but I do find it very interesting that this phrase only ever appears in the Psalms, and uh, I still don't understand the significance behind that yet. But if you have some thoughts, 
um, please share them with me. You can message me on Twitter or Instagram at Price of Life Show. Uh, I'll be looking forward to hearing from any of you who have some idea. You know, just maybe if it's just an inkling, maybe it's uh, maybe you looked into this before and you have some real insight into it. Let me know, and uh, I'll share it with uh, the rest of the group on uh, the next episode of Behind the Price. Um, anyway, I also mentioned in the Price of Life episode that there is another passage in Matthew that mirrors our Matthew 7 passage in a couple of ways, and that is the parable of the ten virgins um, in Matthew 25. And uh, I'll, this is one of my favorite parables, um, and it has a lot of parallels so let's take a second and read it. Let me pull it up on my phone real quick. I'm starting in, in verse 1, the very beginning of Matthew chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. Those who were foolish, when they took their lamps, took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom delayed, they all slumbered and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, What if there isn't enough for us and you? You go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. While they went away to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Most certainly I tell you, I don't know you. Watch therefore, for you do not know the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So, there should be two phrases that jump out to you, which remind us of our Matthew 7 passage. And those would be, Lord, Lord, and I do not know you. Those are almost identical to what we saw in our Matthew 7 passage. With these two phrases in my mind, they create a clear connection to our Matthew 7 passage. And I think that these passages can actually help to interpret each other um, in some ways. I believe that this illustration of the virgins represents the church. And there are two groups that Jesus separates us into. The difference between those of us who are believers who live their life in preparation of Jesus' return, those who have brought oil and are ready for him when he comes at an hour we don't know. And then there are those believers who do not live such a life, who are unprepared. Um, there's a number of ways that we can interpret this, but that's not really the purpose of what we're doing today. But I believe that the reference of not knowing the day or hour at the end of this passage represents the coming rapture of the church at an unknown time, meaning that this group of virgins, both wise and foolish, are the modern church age Christians, like you and me. Jesus is telling us that when he comes to rapture us at some unknown time in the future, some of us will be prepared and ready to go. Some of us will be caught with our pants down, totally unexpecting this end of our first life. So the next question is, what happens to those who are unprepared? Well, we see that um, they are shut out of the celebration festivities. It says here that the door was shut to the marriage feast. And uh, not only that, but they also receive a sobering message from Jesus himself when they try to appeal to him. He says, I don't know you. Now, I need to mention that this word for know in the Greek is not exactly the same word that we saw in Matthew 7, which, uh, as we've mentioned a number of times before, is gnosko, which talks 
typically about a deep experiential understanding or knowledge of something or someone. The word here, however, is oida. Um, it means no as well, like we would say in English, but it has more of a meaning of um, basic, simple mental ascension, usually. Now, I don't think it means that here, um, as we'll get into just a moment. I want to read something uh, from a book titled Final Destiny, The Future Reign of the Servant Kings by a dude named Dr. Jody Dillow. Um, now, this is a huge book. It's got, I don't know, upwards of a thousand pages. Uh, it's one of my favorite books. Um, it's, it's basically a massive thesis on the doctrine of salvation and some of the most theologically difficult passages in the New Testament. And uh, I highly recommend it because uh, it's been a huge book for me, but uh, specifically, Dr. Dillow gives um, answers, interpretations to some of these really troublesome verses that we read in the New Testament specifically that have been more satisfying to me logically than any other interpretations I've heard from uh, other individuals or other books I've read. Um, so, Dr. Dillow takes a moment in uh, one of his chapters, talking about this parable of the ten virgins, to describe the lexical range of the word oida. Lexical range is just the idea of uh, how many different meanings a single word can have. Um, like, for instance, in English, we have the word trunk. A trunk can be the trunk of a tree. It could be the trunk of a car. If you're in America, it could be the trunk of like a trunk, a chest, like the trunk up in the attic. Um, <clears throat> the trunk has a number of different meanings. The word itself doesn't change at all, but depending on the context, it takes on different definitions, right? So that's a lexical range. And every word, almost every word in every language has some lexical range. Uh, it's rare that you have one word, unless it's a technical term, that has a very specific single definition. So, Dr. Dill takes a moment to talk about the lexical range of this word oida, and he says, the lexicon lists references in extra-biblical Greek, extra-biblical just meaning Greek documents that are not Bible, they could be letters from uh, people, they could uh, be dictionaries or historical documents, where the word oida means to honor. And this is the meaning in this parable. When the Lord says that he doesn't know them when he doesn't oida them. He means that he does not appreciate, respect, or honor them. He does not esteem them highly. It's obvious that he knows them, oida, by observation, and that he has information about who they are, because he's looking at them. You know, He knows them in that sense. Very simple understanding of who they are. He, he's, he's talking to them. He knows them. So oida can't mean recognize. It makes no sense here. He clearly recognizes them and knows who they are. This suggests that another usage of oida, to honor, to esteem, or to respect, fits the context better here. Some authorities, ancient and modern, agree that oida here refers to the fact that he does not approve of the foolish virgins. So, in effect, this ten virgins parable gives us another look at this concept of being undoubtedly saved. They're definitely Christians, definitely believers, but they're missing out on some joyful experience because of living in a spiritually unproductive way on earth. Okay, next let's talk about the concept of depart from me. Um, let's go back, let's get out of the 10 virgins for a moment. Let's go back to 
Matthew 7, our Matthew 7 passage. And um, here's a little bit of historical information for you guys, again from Dr. Dillow's book, on the topic of the phrases, depart from me and I don't know you. Um, Now, let me preface this with a, a bit of a disclaimer. What I'm about to read is a bit of theorization. It's based on real historical information, but from a bit too late. We don't have the exact details on what it was like in Jesus's day, but we can argue whether or not um, something, this this topic that we're about to read about um, would have happened in Jesus's day as well. So um, the phrase is, I do not know you and depart from me may refer to a teacher's order forbidding the student access to the rabbi for seven days and means something like, I will have nothing to do with you. A guy named John Nolan also suggests that the phrase is reminiscent of a Jewish band formula. A guy named Klein Snodgrass, in his massive work on the parables, believes that the phrase, I do not know you, in verse 12, may reflect a ban formula in which a disciple is forbidden access to a teacher. It is possible that the allusion here is to this Jewish custom of being put out of the congregation a fate that fell on any Jew who confessed Jesus as a Messiah when you, uh, if you read in John 9.22. However, all these parallels to Jewish literature are uncertain because they are based on references from the Talmuds in AD 400 to 600. So, like I said a little bit earlier, it's debatable how much of this material reflects first century Palestinian Judaism. But anyway, he goes on to list three different levels of this kind of ban. And he mentions that he believes the second level, Nidui, best fits um, what we read in Matthew 7, if we were to assume that this is what Jesus is talking about. The second level was called Nidui, excluded ones, which, while very severe, was also temporary. It was issued for various offenses, such as dealing unfairly with uh, another moral failure or selfishness in seeking an undue advantage in business. The one who was rebuked was to endure a 30, 60, or 90-day banishment. And when he turned from his conduct, the ban was terminated. According to the Jewish Encyclopedia, he was forbidden contact with every person excepting his wife and children, and it was forbidden to sit at meals with him or to count him in the ritual number requisite for prayers. A person over whom Nidui was pronounced was required to don the habiliments of mourning possibly alluded to in the wailing and gnashing of teeth, uh, which are referenced in a number of passages in the New Testament. He was moreover forbidden to bathe, to cut his hair, and to wear footgear. The modus operandi was to pronounce nidui upon an offender for the period of 30 days when having repented, that is, admitted his guilt, his conduct, the ban terminated. So if indeed this concept of uh, this kind of ban um, was going on in Jesus's day. We don't know that for sure. But if it was going on, then this is very interestingly similar to the way that Jesus describes um, the response he gives to both the ten virgins, the foolish virgins who get uh, shut out, but also this group in Matthew 7 who, uh, who do not get to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a temporary um, punishment or a temporary disciplinary action. So, 
let's move on to uh, grant th this idea of entrance. Now, in the Price of Life episode, I mentioned that I do not believe the phrase enter the kingdom can possibly simply only mean physical entrance into the New Jerusalem. Because, like I said, we have a million problems um, with uh, like a number of holes created in our theology, our soteriology, the study of salvation. Um, because a lot of these passages teach that you have to, the only way that you can possibly enter the kingdom is by doing good works. And we know from a number of other verses that we read earlier um, that faith is the only thing that saves us, the only thing that can save us. So I'm suggesting at this point that enter the kingdom does not mean being saved um, and getting allowed actual physical entrance into the eternal kingdom of God, but instead being ushered into the kingdom with glory, recognition, and celebration, essentially being paraded into the new Jerusalem. Uh, and I first heard this idea from Dr. Jody Dillo in his book, uh, Final Destiny, that we've been reading a little bit before. Uh, let me take a quick second to say that um, if you find any of the information that I'm reading in Dr. Dill's book interesting, whether it's because you're encouraged by his interpretations or you want to learn more and challenge uh, the truth, I've included an Amazon link, or at least I've hoped to, by this point, include an Amazon link uh, to purchase it there. If you do choose to buy this book uh, using my link, it will help support the show financially and uh, it doesn't cost anything at all to you. So getting back into it. We use even this kind of phraseology in English, this idea of um, making an entrance. When we say someone makes an entrance into a party, we're not just saying that they've simply entered the building, everyone does that. But someone who makes an entrance into the building or into a party or something like that, we're suggesting that they've entered with greatness, like very visibly, with lots of acclaim and, and maybe pizzazz, right? So I think that what Jesus is offering us in these passages where he mentions entrance into the kingdom by certain works, he's offering to be ushered, for us to be ushered through the gates of the new Jerusalem with the concept of raucous cheering of the angels, food and drink, celebration galore. And I think that we can see a little bit of that uh, if we look at the wide and narrow gate illustration that Jesus gave in this very same chapter, Matthew 7, just a few verses earlier uh, in uh, verses 13 through 14. Give me a sec real quick. I'll pull it up on my phone. 13 and 14. Okay. Enter in by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter in by it. How narrow is the gate and restricted is the way that leads to life. Few are those who find it. If we take a second to think further on this image, both parties... Both people, you've got people entering by the narrow gate, people entering by the wide gate. They're both going to the same place, right? Both paths lead to the same city. But one is obviously less traveled and restricted. And uh, the city that we're talking about is the kingdom here. We're talking about the New Jerusalem. He's talking about believers, because in the end, we all end up in the same city. But some of us who've lived a life honoring the king get to enter the gate at the front of the city. Now, I've read in a number of places that in the ancient days, there were often many gates into one city, but the narrowest was usually the one from the main road leading through the front of the city, but it was only reserved for important personnel, while the other gates uh, off to the sides of the city were wider. 
and they were meant for normal commoners and daily, you know, uh, entering, exiting the city. But uh, before you take all that as truth, let me find a source and uh, I'll see if I can link it in uh, the description for the episode, the show notes, or uh, we'll talk about it in the next episode of Behind the Price. So at the end of all this, what kind of people are this group? This group that uh, claim Lord, Lord, and, uh, and get denied something by Jesus? Well, I believe that they're definitely believers. Um, like I've mentioned a number of times, there's almost nothing in uh, this passage or the passage of the Ten Virgins uh, or any other passages that uh, we've read uh, that seem to imply that these are not believers. Um, but they probably are carnal believers, meaning these are people who are saved, who've had some kind of uh, deep uh, spiritual connection, interaction with uh, God at some point. But um, over time, they uh, stopped living a life that uh, is spiritually productive uh, or honors God. Essentially, these people are people that use Jesus' name to accomplish things that aren't within God's desires, right? We say that Jesus told them that you're not doing the things that uh, God wants. And uh, so we could look and we can draw perhaps parallels with some people we see, um, people who are getting rich, becoming popular or famous. Uh, it's not hard to imagine this kind of believer. We see this kind of thing all the time especially in America, if you turn on the TV and flip to a certain station or you drive down a highway uh, on billboards, you can see um, world-famous televangelists or mega-church leaders who are profiting financially in a huge way from their ministry in Jesus' name, but um, they're not living life, their life or accomplishing things that are within God's desires. And this kind of character is what I imagined uh, Bob to be in uh, the Price of Life uh, poem for uh, the last episode. Someone who, who is a believer, um, who, did, who has a, a connection, a relationship with God, who had at some point a, uh, an interaction with him, a true spiritual interaction with him, but over time got distracted or swayed by the desires of the world and ended up living a life um, that was totally unproductive for the kingdom. That was only really productive uh, for him in the moment, temporarily on earth, whether it was riches, fame, anything of that sort. So um, I'm going to end it there. Uh, I'm getting pretty tired. I've been standing up while I <laughs> record this, and for some reason my chest feels like it's caving in. Uh, it's just, <laughs> that's just what happens when you have a chronic illness like me, but uh, praise God, I'm coming through it. Uh, anyway, so uh, let me pray us out real quick. And um, and yeah, God, thank you so much uh, again for everything that you've given us, um, the mind that you've given us to understand, the ears that you've given us for us to hear, um, the heart that you've given us to uh, experience emotion and, uh, and to feel a deeper connection with you in uh, the lives that we live and the people that we meet and interact with. Um, I pray, Lord, that... Uh, you would help us to test everything that has been said in this episode, um, that uh, myself, I wouldn't become um, proud or uh, set in my ways, um, that I would be loyal to you and to the truth and not to any particular interpretation um, that uh, I feel in this moment is correct. 
um, but that I would uh, give myself over to you. And I pray that for everyone listening as well, um, that each and every one of us would uh, sharpen each other, that we would test one another, that through the Holy Spirit, um, we would speak to one another and uh, help each other learn and be encouraged um, in uh, what uh, the Bible says, what you've taught us. And I pray, Lord, specifically over um, every one of us here that we would feel a bit of fear, um, not because not a not a not an untruthful fear that we can lose our salvation, or that uh, by living any kind of carnal lifestyle that we would prove not to be saved at all, uh, but a fear that um, our works and our time mean something for eternity, the way that we live here and now, um, the actions that we do every day, the uh, interactions we have with people, uh, our our worldview, and the way that we conduct ourselves has eternal significance. And I pray that um, you would work in each one of us an understanding and a fear, uh, a helpful fear about uh, this this coming day when the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, returns with uh, the kingdom of heaven, that each and every one of us would strive every day to be not like these groups of people, like the foolish virgins or the those in Matthew 7 crying, Lord, Lord, who... Uh, neither of these groups have lived a life honoring you and uh, experience a bit of regret because of it. I pray that you would help us to um, to be like the wise virgins, to be like a group of people entering through the narrow gate. Even though it's difficult, it's uh, not as fun in this lifetime, um, I believe that you reward us greatly for uh, for living this way for all eternity. So, Lord, thank you for those things. And... Um, and uh, I pray that uh, you would help us to all be encouraged this week and the next couple of weeks. And uh, amen. So thank you guys again for tuning in Oh boy, to uh, this episode of uh, Behind the Price. And um, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to talk about uh, in the next episode of The Price of Life, but um, I have an idea of maybe talking about this concept of the meta-narrative uh, the big picture. Uh, maybe. We'll see. But uh, in any case, I hope to uh, hear from you guys. Again, you can contact me with anything. If uh, you just want to chat or you want to talk more about uh, what we discussed today, you can hit me up on Twitter or Instagram uh, at Price of Life Show, or you can email me at fanny at cgmradio.com. See you uh, next episode.